Thank you for listening to this week's message from North Shore Christian Church. For more information about North Shore, please visit northshorechristian.org. Well, good morning. Uh, welcome to North Shore again. Um, love, love the testimony of Stuart and Amanda. And uh, just that's a, a beautiful story. Of, and it really is a North Shore legacy. So I hope, you know, not only are missionaries, of course, they're son of our previous pastor. He grew up here. Love that for Stuart and Amanda. And, um, and I tell him, you, you're growing the kingdom for sure because every time they come back, they have another child. So it's great, right? Um, love those guys. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. We'll get a Bible to you. And we are starting a new series. And that series is called Radical Love. And the, the uh, purpose of it is to really look at our vision and our mission and, and different breakdowns. Our vision here at North Shore is to see our communities change through hope in Jesus, one person at a time. And if you look at that statement um, in there, um, the purpose of it, our goal, is to change, to transform. Anytime you encounter Jesus, you should come out different. And it doesn't matter if it's your very first encounter with him or you've been encountering him for decades upon decades. Every encounter is intended to transform us, to change us. Sometimes little ways, sometimes in incredible ways. Right, And so uh, that is the, the purpose of the vision for a Christian is to see people change. The power comes from Jesus, not us, not our slick programs, not you know, these cool vision lines. No, the power rests in one place, and that's God through Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. Right? So it's through Jesus. Uh, and the pace that Scripture calls us to walk that out is one person at a time. Every single individual, every human created has value to God and we are called to bring this beautiful and powerful gospel to them. Right? So that's our vision. We want to do what God has for us. Wouldn't it be part of what God has for us, right? Is to be transformed, to be changed through hope in Jesus. One person at a time, starting with me and then expressing that to the world. And so how are we going to get there? You know, we believe if we passionately pursue Jesus, right, our eyes are on him. And it's not just a religion that we have, but it's a passion of our heart, right? Uh, we will begin to transform and change, and people will as well. We believe if we are pursuing Jesus, then we're going to radically love one another. It's going to be a love that is going to catch people's eyes. It's going to transform cultures and people. We believe we're called, like Jesus, right, to compassionately serve our neighbors, right? Those neighbors are the people not like us. And ultimately, we are called to relationally, one person at a time, disciple all people, right? And so that's our vision, our vision path. We went through the series in David where we looked at passionately pursuing Jesus. For him, passionately pursuing God. What does it look like to passionately pursue? And so we looked at David and, and hopefully gleaned some things of what it meant. And what I loved about our David series is he's real, right? Uh, he is a hero, but he's also a very real hero, very human. And God did incredible things and he pursued him. So if you haven't uh, heard any of that series, go online, look at our messages. And, uh, it was a great series. Uh, this series, we're going to look at radically loving one another. We're going to take that. 
And our, our verse, you know, the heart of this series comes from John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. Okay, uh, if you have your Bible, I'm going to have you turn to a place and I'm going to pray for this message as I uh, get into it. Uh, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 9. 2 Samuel chapter 9. That's where we're going to be. Uh, we'll be all over the place. Yeah, well, you know me, right? We'll be everywhere. Um, but uh, that's going to be our core text for today. And um, as you are turning, if you can do this, I'm going to invite you to stand up. Right? And I want to do you a favor. You've been sitting for a while. Let's get those blood flowing. Uh, let me pray over us, okay? And pray for some transformation and change this morning. Father God, we love you. You are good. And I pray that you would do what only you can do through the power of your word. And that's transform and change us. So I pray for each person that's here, that's online, or will watch this later, that they will exit changed and different, not because of any slick message or, you know, cute phrase, but by the power of God through his word working in us. So make it true of me, make it true of us. We pray these things in the beautiful, powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Good. You may be seated. Good. John chapter 13, what's happening here uh, is Jesus, the night that he was betrayed and would be arrested and then ultimately crucified for our sins. On that night, he's in the upper room with his disciples, and he's sitting at a table. And as he's sitting at the table, they break bread, take the Lord's Supper, communion, which we will do at the end of the service if you're wondering. They break bread, and at that table are his 12. Right? One of those is actually his betrayer. Might I use the word, his enemy. And he breaks bread. And he tells that betrayer, Judas, go do what you got to do. And he talks to the other 11. Because that becomes, for them and for us, a backdrop of what he has for us. He says this in John 13, verses 34 and 35. He says, a new commandment I give you. Love one another. Love one another like I loved you. By this, all will know that you're my disciples, followers of me, if you love one another. Now, here's an interesting thing. He says, I give you a new command. Well, if we go back to the law, remember these are Jewish young men, um, still under the law. Uh, the law told them to love their neighbor, Leviticus 19. So this isn't a new command, but it's new in this sense, okay? And I'm going to use an illustration of a car restoration. So you're going to see a picture pop up here of a car, okay? So there you go, right? Before and after. I wish this was my car, but it's not a photo from my driveway, unfortunately. There's a beautiful 68 Camaro down there. Isn't that amazing, right? Uh, my favorite car in the world, just so you know. Um, up above is obviously a car probably found in some field somewhere, right? And so here's the thing about that. Is that car on the bottom new? Yes, it is. It's new to whoever sees it compared to what it was, right? Because it's been restored. You with me? Right? So this new commandment is not new like, oh, they've never heard that they should love their neighbor. Uh, but it's a restored command of new because of this, okay? 
I don't know who restored this car. I, I got it off the internet. Um, but to get to the after picture, right? You can't look at the before picture and say, okay, I know what it should look like. They had to know the original, right? They had to have a picture. Someone had to show them. More likely than not, this is some older gentleman who owned a 1968 Camaro when he was in high school, right? He says, I know what this looks like. I know the original. And so I take this broken, beat up, not even recognizable thing. That, is that a 68 Camaro up above? It is, but it's broken, it's lost. Um, until it got restored, until it was made new. And that's the command to love for us. It is a new command because the original showed up. And it's new to all of you because now Jesus is there. He's the original. Now you know what love is. And if you know John 13, what happened just before this, he got up from the table and washed her feet. Expressed love and service. Blew their minds, right? Now, all of his teachings, we know not too far down the future, they're going to understand all his teaching in new ways. They're still, even at this table, they're trying to figure it all out. But what happens, it's new, this new commandment uh, is because the original there. That's why 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the love chapter, right? You know it? In verse 8 there, it ends that section kind of really cool, talking about these eternal things, you know? Uh, these things are eternal, faith, hope, and love. But verse 8, what does it say about love? But the greatest of these is love. Why is that? It's greater than faith. That's eternal hope. That's eternal. Why is love the greatest? Because what we know in 1 John, that love is more than a feeling and an action. Love is a person. Love is God. God is love. Jesus is love. It's not what Jesus does. It is who he is. It's his very nature. And everything you just read uh, in 1 Corinthians 13 um, is all created by love. It's what love does. It's not just a warm, fuzzy thing. Faith and hope are all born from a person. The person, love, Jesus. So I kind of created a definition. I was trying to work on what is the definition of love. So a uh, definition, I hope, is going to pop up here. This is, I would say, this is Scott's definition, but hopefully trying to be biblical, right? Um, love is the wholeness of Jesus, known, experienced, and expressed by a person, and then expressed towards people and things, right? Love, when we look at love and the call to love, it's not so much about what we do uh, as much it is of who we are becoming. Because if we become like Christ, like love, we'll never become Christ, right? Uh, we become like him in character. But the more we become like him, guess what the more we will do? We will do love, the things of love, you know, whether it's in thought or action indeed. Right? And this love, Jesus says, love like me. That is a radical love. So we put that in our vision statement. It is intentional. Jesus is a radical, radical dude, right? Um, he is 
powerful. He, he, he turns things and worlds on their end, right, for change and transformation. You know, just think about Jesus for a second and how radical his love was. If you look at Philippians chapter 2, uh, it talks about God himself coming down to the sinful world to with us. Man, I mean, this is a neighborhood you don't want to move to, just so you know, right? Earth. When heaven's your home, you don't want to move here. But he did. We see him as in the Gospels of all of a sudden stepping out and, and breaking boundaries, going into lands that no one else would go to. He would associate with people that no one else would. In fact, the religious people got angry and mad at him. And we know to a point his love was so radical, they actually killed him for it. Right? He's too radical. And he's professing to be God. And they did what they did. Made him so mad. He actually touched people who no one else would touch. He would express his relationship with the Father ways that people would. You can't do it. You can't do it on that day. You can't do it in this way. He absolutely was radical. And he calls us to be the same. We should be a community that is defined as being radical for the right things in love, right? So here's my hope for this whole series, right? That we will see Jesus. We will become like Jesus, grow and mature in Jesus' likeness. That we will radically love like Jesus radically loved us. Because I believe this. If we do that, then we'll begin to see the results of Jesus who transformed and changed the world. And his greatest weapon in doing that was what? Love. What war did Jesus start? Right? It was love. And it feels so benign sometimes, right? But it is powerful. And so we want the results of Jesus. Um, I'll say this, maybe the only soapbox I'll jump on besides praising Jesus is our world desperately needs Christians to be Christians right now. Amen? Amen. Desperately. And so this is a, a vision that he gave me um, uh, years ago. But this series, it says we, they, they need us to be Christian. They need Jesus, right? And so I want to call us all into that, okay? So what we're going to do as we step into this, we are going to be in 2 Samuel. And how this series is going to work, we're going to look at different aspects of love expressed in Scripture. And we're going to, you know, ultimately land where we see Jesus like that. So what I hope through the series that I've told our, our teaching and preaching team is I want the people to get tired of hearing about Jesus in the next 11, 12 weeks, okay? Uh, I want them to get tired of hearing, oh yeah, he did that. Yeah, I know that, good. I want you to hear it again then. I want you to get so tired of it that you'll do it. Amen? Come on, come on, be with me, right? Here we go. And so um, uh, I want to read from you 2 Samuel 9. I'm going to read the whole chapter, okay? It, um, interesting, I think the David series is so powerful that we're just drawn back to David. So we're actually going to start with David, um, okay? We're going to look at a king's love, and that king is King David, okay? King David. And we're going to see it expressed through uh, Mephibosheth. And you don't know it, but you should be applauding right now because I had to practice that name all week. 
And when I read this text, I'm really mad at the authors of, of the text because when I get down, I got to say Mephibosheth about five times, okay? And you know I'm an excitable guy. And when I get excitable, my tongue gets really, really fat. All right, you got your amen? You know that. Um, uh, I can only be interpreted through time, not word at a time. Uh, so we're going to look at a king's love expressed to Mephibosheth, okay? So let's do this together. All right, you ready? And David said, is there still anyone left in the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. The king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amal, at Lodabar. Then King David said, or sent and brought him from the house of Machar, the son of Amal, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should re show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. Okay, so let's walk through this a little bit, okay? And aren't you proud of me? That's a lot of Mephibosheth, isn't it? <laughs> wow. Okay, um, is this. So we see David searching, right? Searching for an heir to Saul's throne because what happened in this book earlier is all of Saul's heirs apparently were killed. There's no heir to Saul's throne. And David was searching. And this is about 15 to 20 years after Saul and Jonathan were killed in battle. Okay? So he's searching. And the reason he is searching, okay, is for love. Okay? 
We learned back in our series in 1 Samuel uh, 18 that David and Saul's son, Jonathan, had a friendship. They loved each other like they loved their own soul. They had a deep, deep love for each other in a very difficult time because Saul wanted to kill David because David um, was having great success. At some point in time, Saul would recognize him as a future king of Israel. Saul was on the throne. David was having great success. David knew that he was anointed the future king of Israel. And so this pursuit happened. Saul trying to kill him. Uh, And in that, an amazing friendship, a love like their own soul, Jonathan and David, okay? And then in that as well, what happened is, as we see in this, um, there's something called hesed, okay? It's a Hebrew word. We see that at play. Uh, In this text, you see it translated from Hebrew to the English, the word kind, Okay, so anytime you see kind in there, it's the Hebrew word hesed. And it, um, in fact, as I just got into it, I've heard the word before, but I was studying a lot this last week. And I really believe this. I think it may be the most significant Hebrew word uh, of the Jewish and Christian faith. It's just incredible, an endless amount of meaning and depth. But it really is kind of the core characteristic of God himself. Love and all of its attributes that come from that. So, and it's kindness here, right? So this hesed we see here, uh, it's translated often as loving kindness, right? David was kind, being kind to the heirs of Saul's throne, the sons of Jonathan. But it wasn't his. It said to show the kindness of God. And this is important, Christian, right? You don't love well enough, I don't either, to love the world on my own strength, right? And what we see in David in this marvelous story is it's not in his own strength. This is showing the kindness, the hesed of God, right? And that is a covenant love. It's a promise love. It's unconditional. Greek, you would say agape. Can't earn it, it's given, a statement. God does this. So David is operating in this scene from the Hesed, God's love. And what that does, the coming together of David's love and the Hesed, God's love, uh, is a promise. In 1 Samuel chapter 20, we see this moment, a really tense moment, that Jonathan and David make a promise, a covenant promise of love for one another and love for one's family right? Offsprings and sons. So what you see playing here is Mephibosheth is the son of Jonathan. And David is expressing his love and the love of God, covenant love to his heir. That's why he's searching. He wants to make this right. David, did he have to do this 15, 20 years later? No, he's the king of Israel, the United Kingdom. He doesn't need to do it. People won't even hold him accountable to that. But what happened is this, um, he knew the covenant he made. And I just think we see the heart of David. We see the heart of God here. Um, so it's because of love and this covenant they made. Um, and so what he does in that love is he pursues an outcast. 
See, Mephibosheth was a political outcast. Because in this time, when there was a transfer of power of the throne, what you would do is you'd go all, to all the heirs of the previous king and you would kill them. That was just common. It was you know, kind of the kingdom culture, right? Sometimes you look at the Old Testament like, oh, that's horrible. It's the kingdom culture. It's much different than where we're at now. Um, so in this kingdom culture, that's what you do. Kill everybody, right? So Mephibosheth, his penalty was death. That's what he deserved, what everyone expected. It's what he expected. That's why when he approached David, he, David said, don't fear, because he was terrified. He said, uh-uh, they found me. Okay, he's an outcast. But also he's an outcast because when they, or Saul and David, or Jonathan were killed, you know, because they're wealthy, Mephibosheth's nurse scooped him up to flee and run because of this death penalty, right? And she dropped him crippled both of his feet. And now we see him as an adult, he's still crippled. So obviously extreme injury that was lifelong. And how you treated in this time someone that was um, challenged in this way, uh, a lot of times death, right? Um, banishment, hide him away, right? And I believe that's what's happened here. I think Mesiphon is being hid away out into kind of a, a land of nothing. Right? And so it happens, he's an outcast, he's outside. And if we look at this thing and say, okay, that is just so out of context for us. Um, what's an outcast for us? I believe an outcast for us, and each one of us have them, is anyone outside of our norm. Whatever your norm is. It could be politically, socially, economically, personality type, lifestyle, religion, anyone outside your norm in your life is an outcast. What did David do to an outcast? He pursued him. He pursued him. And if we look at what he did when he found him, right, it's incredible. Man, he rescued him, right? He went after him to rescue him. And as he rescued him, he restored him, right? He restored him. Don't fear. I'm going to give you, I mean, you can't miss this. King Saul was a wealthy, wealthy, powerful man. You know his assets were incredible. And he says, I'm going to give you all your grandfather's land. That's not a quarter acre over here in the back 40. Incredible. Gave him his inheritance, right? He said to Ziba, Saul's servant, who's now serving David, uh, just to see the magnitude of what he's doing, he says, I want all your sons uh, and your servants. Um, and in the numbers, I think it's what, 20 sons and 15 servants, or it might be mixed up, if you remember what that is. Um, but it's a huge number of servants. When you need that many servants, it's big. And he said, I want them to go work the land for you. So you have all the wealth and riches you need for, it says bread, but what your needs are. And it, this isn't talking about simple food because David's going to feed him, right? So this is talking about his wealth and his riches. I'm going to restore all that wealth that you were hiding and you thought you lost. 
incredible, lavish, uh, restored him his inheritance. And they did something. I mean, all of it's amazing, but then invited him to his table. Said, I want you to come to my table. And, and you understand the, the significance of being invited to the king's table. Because that represented position, right? Only certain people are invited to the king's table. You had to have value, had to be important. Uh, it was a promise of provision and protection. Right? I'm going to take care of you. You're okay. Psalm 23, if you need to know, when it says you prepare a table before my enemies, it's talking about this moment of going to the king's table and he's going to take care of everything. You can relax and take in what the king's offering. That's what's happened at the table. He invites him and he says, I'm going to invite you as my son. And again, that's full inheritance. That is a powerful, powerful um, promise of who he is. You have a home. You're here with me now and forever. And I love it in verse 8, if you look at that, how uh, Mephibosheth responded. It blew him away. Have you, have you ever seen someone love an outcast? I just want to share a, a quick story with you. My granddaughter, not sure if there's a picture here or not, um, uh, was born with some, this is Ellie to the right with the ears on there, um, was born uh, with some, some, uh, some challenges, right? And she struggles and, uh, and these things. And so what she had in uh, her early days is a therapist would come in and help her because she, she couldn't talk, she couldn't use her motor skills and all these things. And so typically in that profession, right, you go through a season and someone else changes, whatever. So she went through multiple therapists and she was just uh, kind of stagnant in her development. And this one lady comes into my daughter's home to do the therapy for Ellie and she'd just been, you know, kind of just not really developing or growing. And I'd call this lady a, a hippie, okay, the best way to describe her, you know. And talking about everything they've done and she says this, she goes, um, well, Ellie's beautiful. Ellie has value. She will tell us what she needs. Well, she, she can't even talk. Can't even really move her hands or anything. My daughter's like, what? Um, she says, no. Um, uh, we're going to let Ellie. So they got on the floor with Ellie and just engaged her uh, as a person, as a human. This person whose society says, you are broken. You need to be fixed, right? Um, she says she has value. She's a person, and we're just going to get to her. And, and she said, talk to her. Uh, and my daughter called just crying. She says, we have not seen Ellie grow and develop like this. You know, the power of love of somebody stepping outside of a boundary, a, a structure that the world deemed this child, my granddaughter. Uh, and, you know, and she started talking. She started moving her hands. She started walking. It's just incredible. It's because someone loved an outcast, right? David showed us what it means when you love an outcast. And we see Mephibosheth just, when it happens, he says, Wow, I can't believe in verse 8, you are showing me regard, right? Because you're showing a dead dog, which is just kind of an, an adage, a phrase, but meaning I'm an outcast. I'm nothing. I'm the bottom of everything. And you are showing me regard, King David? And paid homage. He worshiped, not like you worship God, but you worshiped him. Said, Ugh. Uh, and I love this about this. Uh, 
there are people watching. Because it tells us that Mephibosheth had a son, Micah. He was there. His future just changed because he watched this king love his dad who the world shunned. And I'm sure he heard many times that we may die someday. And he's also watching love work toward an outcast, right? Think of all of those servants. Ziba, remember that? And all those, his sons, um, all those servants, their death, their penalty was death too. And they witnessed this. They witnessed David pursue an outcast because he radically loved his God. So it takes us to, there is another king that radically loves. And that's our king. Our king, King Jesus, radically loves. And who does he express that love to? You. And I wrote the word me. I want you to write the word me. Write your name in it. Um, I don't want you to hear this from a religious talk perspective. I want you to hear it personally. Whatever your story is, right? He loves you, pursues you. He expresses his radical love to Scott, to you, personally. He searches for us. Luke 19.10, I I think I call this Jesus' mission statement. The Son of Man, speaking of Jesus, came to seek and save the lost, the outcast those that are blind, those that can't see, you, me. He came to search for us, to seek us out because he radically loves us, right? He did it, John 15, 13. I love it. There is no greater love than one who will die for his friends. That is speaking of Jesus and his love and what he's willing to do for us. It's motivated from one thing, love because it's who he is and what he does expresses to you and me and we are outcast right Romans 5 8 Christ loves us right through his love while we were yet sinners Christ died for us sinners right one separated from God because of sin Romans 3.23 is clear. We have all sinned and fall short of God's glory. Right? We are outcast from him. Romans 5.12 tells us that we all carry all mankind, uh, all the earth, all things carry the weight of the sin of Adam. All the earth groans because of that original sin. We have it. We are outcast from God. And he pursues us. He pursues us with that love. And then he does what we see David do because David is inspired with the Hassad of God. Ephesians chapter one, read it sometime. But if you go through that, uh, incredibly what we have through Jesus. Now what does he do? How does he radically love us? He, he says, he gives us every spiritual blessing from heaven. He says he adopts us as family, gives us grace, gives us forgiveness 
of sin that we all have. He restores us to who he has us to be, who he created us to be. And he does that because we can't do that. And he lavishes us with blessing. Right? This king radically loves us. And he invites us to the table. Right? We are the Judases. Right? And he invites us to the table. Have you ever seen anyone express the love of Jesus? You know, as I was preparing this message, I was just reminded that someone that did that for me. You know, my story, I was a poor, uh, broken little boy. My family, you know, drugs and violence and all that stuff. So I was just this young kid and all of my brothers and sisters just trying to survive. And we lived on Lincoln Street in Colville, Washington. And we lived in this house that's just barely standing, right? Uh, and the cops were called to it so often, right? And around us were all these trailers. So it was a, a, a mainly a trailer corner, a, a giant one. And a lot of the kids lived just like I did. But right off there, there was this one house. It was huge. I, I went and Google Earth and looked at it. It's not as big as I remember. Do you know how that works? But it looked like a castle. You know, had this fence, had this amazing garden. And uh, this Swede named Arnie lived there with his wife, Louise. Sweet old lady. And Louise would come to my house and visit me and my brothers and sisters and all the kids in the neighborhood. In fact, she would invite us to her house so I would walk over to this castle. I remember being in the garden with them, picking, you know, stuff, and she'd send us home with it. Um, she would invite us into her house. We would eat, eat like I had, don't, don't remember eating. All, they had a big family, right? They loved Jesus passionately. And I'd just sit there at this table, this grand table with this family, with the sweetest person I've ever met in my life, you know, Louise. Right? And she invited me in there. And I, I felt seen and loved when the world just said, don't go down that industry. Don't go to that trailer court. Right? right? She saw a value. And I love this. Just fast forward. That was the person that ended up praying for me to receive Jesus years later. And then even a longer later, after I walked away from God, and, and sometimes I'll tell you more full story. Some of you may know it. Now as an adult Christian, when I got, you know, saved and really understood what it meant in my 20s, I'd tell Sandy about Louise. I said, there's this lady, if I ever see her, I'm going to thank her because I don't think she knows what she did. I do not know if she knows what she did by loving me, seeing me, caring for me, just radically loving me. Um, and it was cool. So once we moved back to our hometown, you know, just before we were 30 years old, uh, we picked a church. Now we're believers. I literally, we're walking to this church, and, it's, you know, you couldn't see. There's no window in the front door. So we opened it up, and guess who's standing there? Louise. Sandy doesn't know who she is. Just know about her. And all of a sudden, I go nuts, you know, um, and, you know, just crying and hugging her. And, you know, this is her. So anyway, God is good, right? So cool. Um, but 
she radically loves like Jesus because that's what he wants. John 13, 34 and 35. This love, this radical love of Jesus, we are called to love like him and people will know that we're followers of him. See that? So we look at how radical Jesus is. You know, the guy that's crossing roads, the guy that's building bridges to people, outcasts, the guy that is touching the untouchable, loving the unlovable, going into their house and sitting at their table while the religious, it actually says grumbles, like, what's he doing? What is he doing? Unreal. That's our Jesus. That's our call. But here's what's beautiful. My testimony, your testimony, it changes the world, right? Changes the world. We are called to radically love like Jesus. And I love it. We get to go all the way back to the Old Testament and we get to watch David do it, right? Very Christ-like, a foreshadowing of the King of Kings of watching him love, covenant love, kind love. And so this morning, uh, as we um, just head to our next steps, what I'm going to ask is the ushers will begin to prepare uh, communion. Because um, uh, communion, right, is also called what? The Lord's Supper. It's the table. You can do all through the text, even until the final end for us, the table matters for us. Because the table is a place that you get invited to. And it's at the table, the hope, the call, the invitations is that we would receive what he is offering by faith, right? And what Jesus does is he takes a world of vagabonds, right? And that means wanderers looking for a home and he invites them to the table and says, I want you to come sit here and I'm gonna offer you bread and a cup, my body, right, that is given for you to restore you to sonship, right, to the family. And I'm going to offer you a cup that represents my blood that was given for the forgiveness of your sin so that you could be washed white as snow, righteousness, not a righteousness of your own, but of Jesus. So you can be in intimate fellowship with God now and forever. And you can be in his kingdom. You can be at his table today and forever. But it starts with faith. To say, yes, I understand. I am an outcast because of my own sin and the sin that I inherited from Adam. But I accept by faith your invitation to receive your payment at your cost, Jesus, on the cross of dying for my sins, shedding your blood for my sins, and that's what the Lord's table is. It's you, vagabond, coming in there by the power of his love and, or the wonder of his love and the power of his grace of saying yes. And so as we take the Lord's Supper here in a few minutes, um, I want you guys can feel free to go ahead and begin to pass it out, okay? Um, is this, is, um, and I want you to hold the elements. We'll take it together. So I want you to understand that you are an outcast invited to this table however you got invited. Uh, and you, in remembrance, remember the radical love of Jesus and the gift of himself and his shed blood. But there's also, right, 
He calls us to be an expression of that. So when we take, we call it communion for a reason, right? Because we're communing with him and other people. This table isn't meant to be just you sitting there. He wants to fill it. And he wants to use you to fill it. He wants you to go find vagabond and outcast and say, come to this table. I want you to come and sit alongside me as we look at the wonder of his love and the power of his grace. And we can't save anybody. They have to make a faith decision. But we are called to bring them to the table, right? And welcome them. These outcasts that are outside the boundaries, that don't do it the way we do it, that don't even maybe believe what we believe, right? In fact, maybe they're enemies. But Jesus says, welcome and they'll be at this table. And I want you, because you know that you've been loved by him, radically loved, 